Can we do something that's not written in the bulletin? Please? Can we sing the doxology? This isn't the end of the service. Um, I just want to sing it. I want us to be reminded of where our praise goes. Okay? We don't have words up top, but uh, you know it. And if you don't, just listen. Sing it with all the gusto that you have. Okay? And I'll start it off with all the gusto that I have. Praise God. If I say, the Lord be with you, you respond, okay, perfect. Now I'm going to say it because I need it this morning, okay? The Lord be with you. Thank you. I heard rumor that there are a lot of changes going on uh, in society, a lot of changes going on in the church. Um, in fact, Pastor Ron talked about some of those last week, right? Change is big, change is small. We didn't even have a pulpit for pastors to preach from, Right? Thank you. <laughs> Will this help you listen more? You know, the bad part is um, I could wear shorts, but it, there's glass down there so you can see through. Isn't it great to be able to have Pastor Ron here? I, I, really, I really appreciate his willingness to, uh, to come to share. He brings a good message every single Sunday. He's going to be here again next week. Um, last week was planned. This next week was not I'm going to be in Fresno um, celebrating the life of my wife's grandfather. She passed away this past Monday, um, so he is going to come and, uh, and fill in while I'm down there. In fact, I would covet your prayers this week. Um, Abby and I are going to be traveling uh, two different directions. Tomorrow morning uh, at 6 a.m., unlike the Midkiffs, 6 p.m., at 6 a.m., I'll be on a plane heading to Tampa for a recalibrate training, and uh, soon thereafter, Abby will be getting in the cars with the boys to start her trip down to Fresno. Uh, so be praying for us as we go different routes. I'll fly from Tampa to Oakland and then Fresno at the end of the week to do the services. Um, we cover your prayers. Treat Ron good. Do you think we should leave the pulpit up here for him for next week? <laughs> Maybe we will. We'll just we'll see if he even notices. He won't even he won't use it. He won't notice. I'm not going to use it. I'd like to dismiss the kids to Children's Church. Um, I've got Esri who's going to hand around the Peterson and Daphne jar. Uh, for those that don't know, Peterson and Daphne are a couple of young kids that we sponsor out of Haiti. And I think one of the best things that we have done with this, one of the, one of the most, I guess, evidences of fruit through this is that our own kids are getting to have the size of the world shrunk for them. They're getting to see that they can help care for people that are, their peers that are in a different part of the country. My goodness, I see a lot of green that's being held up. We should pass that thing more often. Very good. As that's being passed, as the kids are uh, getting dismissed, turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. 
And uh, you can follow along as I read verses 1 through 21. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21. While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. They said, unless you are circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas disagreed with them, arguing vehemently. Finally, the church decided to send Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem, accompanied by some local believers, to talk to the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent the delegates to Jerusalem, and they stopped along the way in Phoenicia and Samaria to visit the believers. They told them, much to everyone's joy, that the Gentiles, too, were being converted. Verse 4. When they arrived in Jerusalem, Barnabas and Paul were welcomed by the whole church, including the apostles and elders. They reported everything God had done through them. But then some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve this issue. At the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, he said, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 12, everyone listened quietly as Barnabas and Paul told about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And when they had finished, James stood up and said, brothers, listen to me. Peter has told you about the time God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for himself. And this conversion of the Gentiles is exactly what the prophets predicted, as it is written. Afterward, I will return and restore the fallen house of David. I will rebuild its ruins and restore it so that the rest of humanity might seek the Lord, including the Gentiles, all those I have called to be mine. The Lord has spoken, he who has made these things known so long ago. Verse 19. And so my judgment is that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write and tell them to abstain from eating foods offered to idols, from sexual immorality, from eating the meat of strangled animals, and from consuming blood. For these laws of Moses have been preached in Jewish synagogues in every city on every Sabbath for many generations. This is Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, and that is the word of the Lord to us this morning. May we hear what he wants us to hear from it. Let's pray. God, this time is yours, and we dedicate it to you. We ask that uh, you would speak loudly. We ask that if our hearts are yet here, that you would draw them here. We ask that we would hear from the voice of God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So tomorrow our nation celebrates Martin Luther King Day. 
And I'm excited for it. Uh, as we know, he was a, a man, a modern-day prophet, who fought for, peacefully, a lot of change in our country. Now, a lot happened regarding racial reconciliation, but there's still a long way to go. I have been fascinated by Martin Luther King for a couple of decades. In fact, when I was in college at Whitworth in a rhetoric and speech class, my final project was to study several of his speeches. And one of the things that jumped out to me when studying his speeches was his use of Scripture during his speeches, specifically his use of the Old Testament. Now, that shouldn't surprise us because we know he was a minister of the gospel before he was a social activist. In his famous I Have a Dream speech, he directly quotes two Old Testament passages. Amos chapter 5, verse 24 is one of those. He said, but let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness, like a never-failing stream. We sang a song that had that line in there this morning. Now, he also quoted Isaiah chapter 40. He said, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places made plain. Those were direct quotes in his speech. Now, there were a couple other times where he subtly nuanced other passages of Scripture. He didn't directly quote them, but if you go back and read those passages, those passages, you'll realize that he was drawing from them. Psalm chapter 30, verse 5 talks about weeping, staying for the night, but rejoicing, coming in the morning. And in Galatians chapter 3, it's mentioned that neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's pretty obvious to us, 55-ish years since that speech was given, why Martin Luther King would use those texts. I mean, he was drawing on them to point to what needed to happen in society. As I've thought about his use of those, I've, I began to think also of other times, specifically in the New Testament, where people gave speeches, where they gave talks, and where they then quoted the Old Testament. And I find it interesting, in fact, so interesting that over the next several weeks, we're going to look at some examples of this, examples of when in the New Testament, somebody quotes the Old Testament, and we're going to ask, why did they quote that specific passage? Why was it something obvious, or was there something that maybe we don't know about? Of course, at the end of each time we ask that, we're going to ask, is there something that we can learn from this as well? You heard me begin our message by reading Acts chapter 15. And prior to that, uh, chapters 1 through 14, a lot is taking place in the church. We, we, in the beginning, we see Jesus return to heaven, and he tells the disciples, go back to Jerusalem and wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And they did. And we know he came in, in Pentecost. And he came with tongues of fire on their, on their head. And then the church exploded. I mean, Peter preached to, the, preached to the crowd several times. Miraculous healings occurred with regularity. The disciples were, um, well, they were arrested, released. They were forced to scatter after Stephen's stoning. They were getting um, persecuted from all sorts of angles. You know, one of those main ones being Saul, who we know uh, met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and then he converted. And he started preaching to the Gentiles as did Peter, who got that specific call from God to preach to the Gentiles. And when that started, the floodgates of the church opened up, and there were believers from the Jewish background as well as believers from Gentile backgrounds that started to come, and, and they believed, and they began receiving the Holy Spirit. That's where we get to Acts chapter 15, and we get to the rub that we saw here. Because Christianity began as an offshoot of the Jewish faith. 
And there was a lot of devout Jews that started following Jesus. And for them, when Gentiles started following Jesus, they thought, well, they have to become Jewish. Or they have to follow all the Jewish laws, the regulations. And we see that at the beginning of Acts 15. Uh, While Paul and Barnabas were at Antioch of Syria, some men from Judea arrived and began to teach the believers. And I believe that these men that arrived were believers. They said, unless you're circumcised as required by the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Paul and Barnabas argued vehemently, so we know they were sent to Jerusalem to get this figured out. And while in Jerusalem, it happened again. Verse 5, but some of the believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and insisted, the Gentile converts must be circumcised and required to follow the law of Moses. You see the disagreement? You see, you see the rub? Well, what happens in a church when there's disagreement? We have meetings, right? And we share our opinions passionately. Sometimes there's tears shed, and ultimately there's prayerful decisions made by the leaders that are called to help guide and shepherd the church. And that's what happened in Acts 15. We, we see the decision in verses 6 through 11. So the apostles and elders met together to resolve the issue, and at the meeting, after a long discussion, Peter stood up and addressed them as follows. Brothers, you all know that God chose me from among you some time ago to preach to the Gentiles so that they could hear the good news and believe. God knows people's hearts, and he confirmed that he accepts the Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. So why are you now challenging God by burdening the Gentile believers with a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? We believe that we are all saved the same way, by the undeserved grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great answer to the dilemma, isn't it? It's a very powerful answer. Now, who stood up and gave that without looking? Who said it? Peter. But it does sound a lot like what Paul would write. Peter, Peter uh, wrote, uh, spoke about grace and faith, and Paul would later write about those things. So Peter stands up and he says, no additional regulations required. We couldn't do it, so why make them do it? They're saved by faith, by grace through faith, just like us. Peter says this. Now, then Paul and, and, uh, and Barnabas share a little bit about what God was doing amongst the Gentiles. And James, one of the key leaders in the Jerusalem church, stands up. And he says, what, what Peter says is right. It's accurate. And to prove it, I'm going to quote an Old Testament text. He doesn't say it exactly like that, but he does cite the Old Testament text as a proof for the decision that they then laid out. And that Old Testament text is found in Amos. You should see in Acts chapter 15, 16 to 18, a little asterisk at the end of that. And that'll tell you where it's found in the Old Testament. Now, it'll also tell you that it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that Peter or that, that James was quoting from. Now, I want to put uh, Acts chapter 15, verses 16 to 18 up on the screen, and I'm going to read from Amos. So see if they are very similar. James says, In that day I will restore the fallen house, or the fallen tent of David, and I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins I rebuilt it, and I will restore its former glory, so that the rest of humanity, including the Gentiles, 
all those I have called to be mine might seek me. That's what James decides to quote. And again, I'm, I'm interested in why someone in the New Testament would quote a specific passage. So we're asking that. Why? With what's going on in the Jerusalem council, with the, the argument that they're debating over, why would James quote that text? Well, the easy answer is it shows a Gentile inclusion into the church. It shows that, hey, even in the Old Testament, God wants the Gentiles included. That'd be the easy answer. And we could stop there, and I think we'd be biblically accurate. But I, I'm not so sure that's all that James was trying to communicate. See, I think there might be more. Because if it was just the fact that Gentiles would be included into the church, he could have quoted all sorts of other verses. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, God said to the Lord's chosen servant, which most believe to be Jesus, he says, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to you, or, or to me. He says, I will make you a light to the Gentiles, and you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. That's pretty inclusive of the Gentiles, isn't it? And we can look at Zechariah chapter 2, verse 11. Zechariah says, many nations will join themselves to the Lord on that day, and they too will be my people. So again, inclusive, many nations. I could list probably a dozen other Old Testament passages that show that God had a plan to include the Gentiles. Ultimately, that's not what's being argued about, though, in the Jerusalem church, is it? The, the Gentiles are being included. The argument is they, they need to do exactly as we have always had to do. And that's why I think that James quotes Amos. Because in Amos, in the context of Amos, there's some things that say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's not just about inclusion. So that's where I want to go for a little bit. Here's why I think James quoted Amos. And there's two places of context that we're going to look at. First is the context in the Jerusalem church. And second is the context in Amos. So first, in the Jerusalem church, what I think James ultimately is saying is, look, Give the Gentiles a break. We are all in process. Give them a break. We are all in process. They are, we are, you are. I think that's what he's saying. You look at who talks in the Jerusalem church. The first person to talk was, remember, Peter. And Peter says something really great. He says we're saved by faith through grace, right? He says exactly the right thing at the right time. But Peter didn't always do that. If you remember his story, you remember that oftentimes Peter said the wrong thing at the wrong time. He was the one that Jesus had to say, Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you're seeing things through your eyes, not God's eyes. He was the one who three times denied Jesus in his hour of greatest need. Peter was the one who took up his sword and started swinging when Jesus was arrested in the garden. And yet in all of that, Jesus still forgave him. You look at John 21 and you'll see that three times. He essentially forgave him. Jesus still looked at him and said, Peter, upon this rock, upon you, I will build my church. So I think what Jesus was saying is, Peter, you don't have it all figured out. You're in process, but I'm still going to use you and I'm going to do the work. So that's the first person who spoke in Jerusalem. The second was James. Now, a lot of people think maybe that's James the apostle. It, it wasn't. I think it was James, the brother of Jesus. And here's why I think that. I don't need to go into why I think that. 
James, the brother of Jesus, he would have known Jesus intimately, more so than you know, most of the other disciples, especially the growing up years of Jesus. But the problem was James didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. It took a very specific meeting by Jesus post-resurrection, I think, to have James actually believe in him. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 6 and 7. The Apostle Paul is writing the church in Corinth, and he's telling them of all these places that Jesus appeared after he was resurrected. You know, he appeared and was seen by Peter. He was seen by the, by the twelve. And then in verse 6 of chapter 15, it said, After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James. So a specific meeting with James. And later by all the other apostles. To me, that shows that James, who didn't have it all figured out at first, because he doubted Jesus, he was a cynic of Jesus, Jesus still used him. He showed him grace. And thus, James became a key leader in the Jerusalem church. So I think that James probably stood up. He, he looked in the mirror. He looked at Peter and realized, guys, we're in process. So we need to allow for the Gentile believers to be in process also. So that's the first reason. Now we get to the specific text in Amos. And here's why I think he chose that specific text instead of the 13 or 14 other Old Testament texts that talk about Gentile inclusion. The prophet Amos, in broad strokes, is a lot about God's judgment on people. And the first chapter and a half, God's judgment is, is um, talked about to Israel's neighbors, the people of Damascus, of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, of Ammon, of Moab. It's not a pretty picture of what God is going to do to them. But that's just the first chapter and a half. The remaining seven and a half chapters, God is speaking to Judah, and he's speaking to Israel. And he's saying, look, Israel, just because you are the chosen, just because you're the elect, doesn't mean you don't have to make intentional choices to follow me. He spoke of judgment on her, of how guilty she was to fail to learn, of, of how God was calling her to repentance also. In fact, he used her as one of the examples of the ways God was working. Amos chapter 9, verse 7, which is just a few verses before the, the, the quote that, that James quoted. Amos 9, verse 7, God says, Are you Israelites more important to me than the Ethiopians? Asked the Lord. I brought Israel out of Egypt, but I also brought the Philistines from Crete, and I led the Arameans out of Ker. Those groups are Gentiles. They are people that the Israelites would have looked at and said, there's no way for them to be part of God's people. There's no way that God's going to be working in them like he's working in us because we're the chosen few. And yet God says, no, 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 look. Yes, I worked with you, but I also work with them. And I want them to be part of my family. And then he goes on to say, and you know what? It's me doing the work anyways. The end of Amos' prophecy, verse 14, God says, I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands, and then they'll rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. Verse 15, I will firmly plant them there in their own land. They will never again be uprooted from the land that I have given them, says the Lord. 
So you look at the, the, the specific quote that Amos or that, that James quoted, verse 11 and 12, and you look at what it's sandwiched by. Before is God's work amongst the Gentile nations, and after is God saying, I'm the one doing the work. So you translate that back into what's going on in the Jerusalem church. You've got true believers with Jewish roots who are saying these Gentiles, these people outside the chosen ones, need to do what we've always had to do. And James, I think, is saying, no, they don't. Look at me. Look at Peter. Look at Amos and what he said to the people of God. I'm using other people, and I'm doing the work. I think that's why James, or I think that's why James specifically quoted Amos. Now, do we need to hear this message today? As far as I know, none of us are going around, going around saying, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, you need to follow the law of Moses. As far as I know, none of us are saying that. And if you are, stop. Okay? Because we've got 2,000 years of church history that we know that prove to us that you don't have to follow the law of Moses to be a Christian. But I wonder, are there times that we are putting additional regulations on people before we may say, now they're a real Christian? I wonder if there's times for that. Now, you may be thinking of those things. I mean, I wonder if, if maybe it's denominational stuff. Well, I wonder if sometimes we think that denomination can't be Christian because they believe so differently from what our denomination, our denomination believes. So in order for us to call them truly Christian, they have, to, they have to fall in line with our doctrine. I wonder what we would do if, if we had 30 Muslim women convert to Christianity and yet continue to wear their head covering because they wanted to honor and respect the culture that they came from. Would we have them sit in here, would we say, you know, Jesus freed you from that so you can take it off? Or would we accept them as fully Christian? How about this? When somebody grows up in the church and they're taught the truths about the gospel, it's not uncommon for them to get to that age of being able to think you know, hitting college, and them really starting to wrestle with the faith. And them starting to ask questions of, is that real? Yes, I've always been taught that, but why? How? Can it be? And you know what happens so often for those that have been in the church that have got past that stage that have come back to their traditional beliefs? We ostracize those that are asking questions. And we say, well, they must not have really been true believers in the first place. And if they were really true believers, then they wouldn't be asking those questions. But what if they are? And what if God simply wants us to be willing to walk this journey with them? And he wants us to be able to say, you know what? You're in process. I'm in process. We don't have it figured out yet. What if that's the message we need to hear today? As so often happens, God decided that I needed to relearn this message this past week. I, th I thought I had it all the way learned. But no, I didn't. I had somebody come and talk to me. And we were sitting there, we were talking, we were talking about faith, we were talking about life, we were talking about things going on in their life, my life. And I found myself sitting there thinking, is that person really a Christian? They claim to be. But 
They don't necessarily talk the language I talk. They don't necessarily look the same way I do. They, they're asking some questions that I've never asked. And as soon as I started thinking that, it was like God just hit me. What are you preaching on? Wait, 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 pulpit time. What are you preaching on? And I had to relearn again. God had to say, James, you are in process. So is this person. I want to do the work in them. I'm going to be the one doing the work. So let's go back to what Peter says, recognizing that we are saved by grace through faith. And then let's walk the journey with the people that God is drawing to himself. I think that might be the message that we need to hear from the New Testament guy, James, quoting the Old Testament. If God dropped somebody in my lap this past week, knowing I knew that this was going to be said, I have to wonder, is he going to drop somebody in your guys' lap this week, now that you've heard it? How will you respond? Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that you give me grace. I thank you that you give us each grace. And I, I thank you that you love us even though we haven't figured it all out yet. God, forgive us for the times when we look at somebody who you have deemed worthy to seek you. Forgive us for the times we look at them and say, I don't know if they're following you. Because God, ultimately, you know hearts. Peter reminded us of that. Ultimately, it's you doing the work. The prophet Amos reminded us of that. So God, forgive us of the times we judge whether or not somebody is a true follower of Christ. God, help us look at us and whether or not we are truly seeking you first. And then help us be willing, Lord, to come alongside somebody who may not look like us, who may not ask questions like us or are asking different questions. And God, help us be willing to enjoy the process with them. We thank you that you aren't done with us yet. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.